WDBM East Lansing. The impact. And now, Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. Good evening. Thank you for tuning in to Exposure on WDBM Impact 89 FM. I'm your host, Stephen Rich. This week, we're turning Exposure into the party platter, covering all things food, drink, and entertainment. We'll explore the complex world of wine tasting, learn about using worms and compost, and meet a slam poet from MSU, as well as much, much more. This is Exposure. Again, I am Stephen Rich, and this is Impact 89FM. You are listening to Exposure. When you're walking down the wine aisle at Myers, I don't know about you, but for me, that's intimidating. Reporter Carmen Scruggs helps us break down what all that lingo means and how to find something that you might actually enjoy. In light of my 21st birthday, I wanted to buy a bottle of wine, but of all the colorful descriptions and multiple bottles to choose from, I had no idea where to start, and I'm not the only one. Michigan State fifth-year senior Jordan Melwall has never bought a bottle of wine. I mean, if I was just going, I honestly had, would have no idea. Maybe I would ask my friends that drink wine. But if I like had time ahead before I was going to buy it, I would probably go to like, a wine-tasting thing, you know, try it out that way. This may be the best way to first approach wine, but I wanted an expert's opinion. Carl Borkovink is an associate professor in the School of Hospitality Business at Michigan State University. He teaches two very popular classes about wine, HB409, which usually has around 600 students in the online dry class, and HB411. What we're trying to do is make people comfortable with wine. A lot of people want to know about wine, but they feel like it's such a uh, scary or obtuse or confusing area, so we try to make them comfortable and uh, recognize what the various varietals are and what wine looks like or tastes like or might taste like. It's a dry class. But get them a sense so that if they walk into a store, look at a wine list, that they're not afraid. And choosing a wine can absolutely be confusing. But Borkovink says one way to become more familiar with wine is to know the different varieties. In the most basic sense, we have white wines. Then we have red wines, sparkling wines, and probably fortified wines. Okay, but however, within that, say within white wines, we have, uh, you know, dry wines, semi-dry wines, sweet wines, wines that you would expect to, say, have with dinner and wines that you might expect to have as a dessert or with dessert or wines that you can consume on their own. Those would be the primary primary categories. But even more important than knowing the varieties and even names of wines is how you appreciate taste. For example, one, uh, uh, one recommendation that uh, is often made if you're having a spicy food, uh, you should have some sweet wine with that or wine with some, some, some uh, sweet notes. Some of my research has found that if you like spicy food, you don't really like sweet wine. Although that's a recommended combination, it may not work for you. And when finding out what your palate is, tasting different wines is key. David Bergdorf and his wife, Debbie, have been making wines for 30 years, and their winery, Bergdorf Winery, has been open nine years. Bergdorf says figuring out what wine to choose is entirely up to personal taste. 
every palate is uniquely different. And so you may taste this wine, the next person next to you may not prefer that wine. And it's all personal preferences in tasting and what their expectations are. He adds that it's important to keep an open mind. Always taste all wines because your palate and your tenure in wine tasting, it evolves and your chemistry, body chemistry changes and who you're with, how your day went, all affects the taste of your wine. So always be open to all wines, learn how to taste the wines and enjoy what the wine has to offer you and don't make a decision on purchasing a bottle of wine on price. Ah, the price of wine. Now that is another important factor. Ever heard the phrases, the second cheapest bottle of wine, or maybe never pay less than $10 and no more than 20 Well, when it comes down to wine, price shouldn't be a determinant at all, unless, of course, you're on a very strict budget. The growing season and demand are two factors Bergdorf mentions that can affect price, but the price of wine is not necessarily correlated with the quality of it. It depends on what you're looking for. If you're looking for a quality wine, then you need to go and look for quality wine uh, that you prefer. The wines that you prefer is what you should be buying. Price has nothing to do with it. Price has nothing to do with the quality of wine or anything. It only has to do with the price of the wine. So now that the steps to find the right bottle are known, how do you actually find that bottle? Borkovink says, you know, The best thing you could do is, if you, if, as you start to develop an understanding of what kind of wine you like, is to go into the uh, store, talk to the manager if there is one there, if somebody's dealing with uh, the wines, and tell them what you're looking for. Say, this is my budget, this is what I'm looking for, I like a drier wine, I like something white, this is what I'm serving with it, but, you know, and, and get his or her advice. And that's, uh, that's probably the best way to find the best possible match for you. And trying to find that perfect match can be overwhelming. But like our wine experts say, an open mind and open taste buds are important when deciding. And while recommendations are helpful, your taste is entirely your own. And trying new wines will help establish your palate and also help you get the perfect bottle. So here's to making this oaky, velvety, and bright wine industry a little easier to figure out than their descriptive adjectives. Cheers. With your Impact News, I'm Carmen Scruggs. You're listening to Impact Exposure. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Friday nights at 10 p.m., get ready for The Mechanical Pulse, where we're spinning all the house, trance, drum and bass, electro, ambient, and remixed music you need to get the weekend started. You'll hear live interviews and DJs spinning straight from the Impact Studios and the best new music on the scene. So tune in every Friday night at 10 p.m. for Mechanical Pulse. Only on 88.9 The Impact. Have you ever considered donating your blood? If not, perhaps you might reconsider. By the time this announcement is through, 15 new people will need blood. In fact, blood is needed by one in every 10 hospital patients, and there is almost always a shortage. There is no substitute for human blood. It cannot be manufactured. It can only come from those willing to donate. To learn more or make an appointment, visit redcrossblood.org. Reconsider blood donation. It's about life. Now back to Impact Exposure. Carmen also got the chance to sit down with Steve Schultz to dive in how the environment is affecting wine. Well, I study from my dissertation, uh, I study climate change and the impacts that it has had, is having, and will have in the future on Michigan's wine industry. Okay, and so how do you go about getting that information? 
like the research specifically. So okay, well, one thing that we do is uh, I'm uh, very strongly on the climate end. So a place that I get a lot of my data from is from the National Climatic Data Center at the NCDC. They have tons of stations all over the state, and then on top of that, we have the uh, MSU Enviro Weather Program, which has um, I, I don't remember the number off the top of my head, but a number of stations throughout the state at different uh, like orchards, vineyards, farms, uh, and the experimental stations that the university runs. Uh, that gives me all, all these stations combined to give me a really good view of what, generally speaking, the climate has been here. Uh, some of the stations for NCDC goes back to, I believe, 1893. Okay. And so when you study the climate and how mm-hmm. it affects the wine industry, right? That's mm-hmm. your specialization. Mm-hmm. So how does the climate affect the wine industry? You know, as- Well, climate is very strongly tied to basically wine uh it's one part of it's one component i should say of uh, the concept of terroir which is a french word basically meaning the word land but what it is is it's the general characteristics of the soils of an area of the topography of the of that area the climate of that area that's where i come in and then the kind of culture in the area or what types of grapes do they grow there and you combine those four aspects uh because no place like in the world is the same as any other place because the climate is always different. And if you have similar climates, then there'll be different soil types. And if there's the same on those two, then there's almost certainly going to be different types of topography, different slopes, things like that. So when you combine all these things together, you can get different types of wine. Let's say you're growing the same kind of wine. You're growing a Merlot, let's say. But the terroir in one space will be different than what it is 100 meters away, 1,000 meters away, and, and you know, 1,000 kilometers away. So the point is, is with climate, um, because that changes not just over space, it also changes over time. And that's where I'm coming in. It's a, for me, being in the geography department, it's a perfect, it's spatial, changes over space, but it's also temporal because it changes over time. So for someone like me, this is hog heaven. This is perfect for a geographer to study the changes of something over space and time. And that's definitely climate. And then I could have chosen, you know, I wanted to do something with agriculture because it's, it's applied. Uh, I could have chosen corn or soybeans and no offense to corn and soybeans, but that sounds really boring. Right. So I did wine. Instead. Yeah. So. Sounds great. Okay. And so what about a cooler wine, at a cooler climate as opposed to a warmer climate? How can that affect the growth of your grapes in producing your wine? Well, it depends on what you want to grow. Uh, here in Michigan, I should specify by saying when we talk about wine, we've been making wine for a very long time here in Michigan, but a lot of the wine prior to about, let's just say 1970, uh, was made out of Concord grapes or Niagara grapes, which are the North American varieties. Now you can make wine out of that and it's perfectly fine, but it's mostly going to be sweet. It's not going to be the the same complexity as you might have from uh, the Vitus vinifera grapes, which are like the Chardonnays, the Merlots, the Rieslings, the kind of the the wines that, you know, globally we would be used to. Uh, Typically, vinifera needs a warmer climate. um, And then once you get into that warmer climate, uh, you can, on the cooler end, you can grow Rieslings, Gewürztraminers, which is what we're pretty good at here in Michigan. When you get to the way warmer end, you can grow, you know, Shirazes, Malbecs, things like that. Uh, 
but when you have a very cold climate, then you're almost exclusively limited to the, you know, at least here in North America, Concords and Niagara's. And the reason really is, is it's not because it doesn't get warm enough here in summer. It's because the winters come in and a lot of these vinifera grapes just can't survive nasty winters. And, uh, and then also repeated spring frosts can be a big problem. So that is a problem here. As we bring these vinifera grapes in, we have to bring in the kind that are at least a little bit cold or frost hardy like we won't probably be growing cabernet sauvignons reliably for a while because they just can't survive frost and you know this winter was a problem but it, there have been other uh springs like the spring of 2012 which was just terrible for the fruit industry here in michigan uh those are things that i, I wouldn't say that those will happen a lot in the future but there is still the possibility that they could happen so we I don't know what the right word is. We are diversified here in Michigan. We have a lot of Concord and Niagara, but we're growing more vinifera every year. It's been since the year 2000 about a 300% increase in acreage for vinifera grapes, which is pretty exciting, actually. Okay, and so the vinifera grapes, that would be more your dry wine types, so your warmer climate. So do you think that the wine industry in Michigan would maybe, you know, in 50 years be leaning more toward those California wines like Merlot based off the climate? Yes, I would. And that's part of the last component of my research. I, I, my first big paper was on the past. The paper that we just finished now was kind of on the present and the future. Uh, that's the third paper. And that's what I want to look at is using climate models, uh, using um, basically grape growing models also to basically look at what the future of Michigan might look like and what would succeed the best uh, at the moment we're very good with rieslings very good cabernet francs and uh good at like ice wines and uh, gewürztraminers but i would argue in the coming decades it, it, because michigan is warming up just like the rest of the world it very much stands to reason that we will be able to grow other types of wine the question is what that's the first question and then on top of that what can we do reliably because that's the other thing it's it's not just a question of what can we grow because we have some summers where yeah we could grow all kinds of grapes right and then other summers we can only grow a couple kinds well what we want is we want a reliable summer or well i should say a reliable string of summers where we can grow grapes for several years because you can't just put a vine in the ground and then boom you get wine grapes you know, in August and September, no, it takes several years for it to happen. And then on top of that, if you only had two good years and then one bad year, well, you're not going to make any money because in the two good years, you'll make some money. But then in the bad year, that's just going to wipe you out. So the thing is, is as we get warmer, it's, it's, it's going to be a slow transition. We can't just dive in headlong into it with these changes. But I do think in the coming decades, 20, 30 years from now, it definitely stands to reason that we'll be able to have more, as you said, of these California wines. Okay, and so then what about the wine industries in, like, California or maybe even Italy? What happens to them, then, if they get a lot warmer? Okay, that's a good question. Uh, there have been a number of papers on that topic, and um, a very there were a string of papers uh, by Greg Jones out of uh, Southern Oregon. Um, he basically figured out a way, using climate data from the past, then also eventually into the future, but then also using wine ratings— of, of, I think it was 27 different regions around the world. So we're talking all, a bunch of regions in Italy, France, but then also Australia, South Africa, Argentina, uh, Germany, a number of Napa Valley, Michigan not included, but that's also understandable. 
uh, for the time being, that is. But uh, what he did was he basically found what a the climate optimum was. Basically, what is the optimal temperature for these regions? And what he found was very interesting. He found that most places were basically at their optimum because what they were growing is tailored for what their climate is. That's right. logical. That makes sense. But the thing is, is as the climate continues to get warmer, what we're going to see is that these areas, let's say Barolo in Italy, Bordeaux in France, what's going to happen is, is they're going to get pushed over pushed past their climate optimum. And what happens is, is because there have been years where they are warmer than what was established as their optimums, those are bad years. They're too warm. The growing season is too short. The phenological cycles are sped up way too fast. Uh, they don't get enough rain or they get too much rain, things like that. Uh, the quality or thus the wine ratings drop significantly, very quickly. So as they go past their climate optimums, that's really bad territory. You don't want to be there. So the, the argument in those papers, and he's he, you know, very, uh, you know, he, it, it, it makes a lot of sense, basically what he's saying, is that as they get, as it, the world warms up, these areas will be pushed past their climate optimums. So either quality will degrade, or these uh, areas will have to transform some way, either grow new grapes, find new technologies to help either, you know, prevent uh, major losses of water to evapotranspiration. That's going to be a problem in uh, Southern Europe, especially. It's, it's uh, probably going to get, well, definitely going to get hotter, but also probably going to get much, much drier, especially in Spain. And that's going to be a real problem where water is already a problem. Right. Temperature is definitely a problem for climate change generally ever because it's going to get warmer, but water is also going to be a problem down the road if it already isn't a problem in some of these places. Okay, so do you think that people should maybe be worried that they can't get maybe their sweeter wine anymore in Michigan if you say that's going past, you know, we would be approaching that climate optimum, right? If we're getting warmer, so then we could get drier wines? Well, to be fair, I, I don't know what Michigan's uh, optimum is uh, because, and one reason is, is, as I said earlier, what helped establish these optimums is that each area has their own defined, definite style. Michigan, because we've only been growing vinifera grapes for about 40 years, a little more than 40 years, I wouldn't say that we don't have a style, but what I would say is that we're, we're kind of all over the place. We're doing, we're, we're experimenting. We're finding out what we can do. What are we good at? What are we not good at? So I would argue we don't really know Michigan's optimum at the moment, but I would say that statewide, um, in the most recent agricultural census, still about, of, of all the grapes made, still about 60% are still Concord grapes. Now, we you use Concord grapes, of course, to make jelly, jams, juice, things like that. There's still going to be plenty of, uh, plenty of grapes left to be crushed to be made into sweet, um, into those sweeter wines. Uh, for the drier wines, for the, uh, you know, like Cabernet Francs and, and Rieslings, and although Riesling's pretty sweet itself, but um, those are going to increase in acreage, but they're still, I think, total less than about 15% of our acreage. A couple decades from now, it will more than likely be bigger, but I still think that it's still going to be a long time where Concords and Niagara's here, the North American varieties, are going to be the lion's share of the grapes made here in Michigan. Okay, so how does climate change then? How is that going to affect the price of wine? I'd say that, that's a good question. <laughs> I uh, th There's a lot that goes into that. Uh, one thing is, uh, obviously, climate is a big dictator in terms of like, okay, what's the quality? But on top of that, 
you got to remember that there are also people that actually make the wine. They can do some things after they, they you know, after they uh, harvest the grapes. They go into, you know, th- there's a number of different things that are done after climate doesn't matter anymore. I, I, I would caution to say that it would get more expensive, but I would also caution to say that it would get cheaper. I do think that it would have an effect probably on especially the highest end, highest quality grapes. That just kind of make, that makes sense, but I, I have to say I'm only speculating at that. Um, but at the same time, there will always be the, you know, two-buck chuck, the really cheap wines, too, that are just, they're grapes from wherever, and those will probably always be around. Right. Okay. Um, so then what about this year? I know the year isn't over, but mm-hmm. so far, how do you think that has been for the growing season here in Michigan? Well, the winter was very difficult uh, for everybody, not yeah. just grapes, <laughs> human beings, too. I'm from South Florida as a native, so this winter was just the worst thing that ever happened. Oh, yeah, I bet. <laughs> but uh, generally speaking, what happened was it, it's a little bit different if you you know, pull out your map of Michigan. So you pull out your hand in the Northwest up in the, you know, your pinky. Uh, we were lucky enough with Lake Michigan that it didn't quite a hundred percent freeze over up there, up around like Beaver Island, but in the Southwest down by, you know, your wrist, um, what happened was uh, the lake effect basically shut down very early, like in around Christmas. And that's, if it ever shuts down, that's just super early. So what happened then is uh, we lost the lake effect. So we lost the lake effect snow machine, which basically meant we couldn't get the snows that come in that really help us out during the winter. We get these snows that help bury the vines about halfway, maybe even two-thirds of the way, and that protects it from the really cold temperatures that we get. So Concord and Niagara, they're more... Uh, what's the right word? They're, they're more attuned to being able to survive these cold temperatures. But the vinifera grapes, no. They just, about negative 20 degrees Celsius is like the coldest they can survive, which is about zero. So what happened was, especially in the Southwest, and I, I did a paper with, uh, in the horticulture department, uh, Paolo Sabatini, uh, we looked at basically a couple of the coldest days when those you know, polar vortexes that you know, were, uh, they, they came down. I mean, the coldest of the cold days when it was like negative negative 20 Fahrenheit here in uh, Lansing. I mean, it was just brutally cold, but what happened there is we mapped how cold it was Mm. throughout that area, and some areas survived, other areas didn't, but, you know, it was just generally really bad, and what happened is is we lost a lot of our capability to grow grapes this year. We didn't lose literally the vines, but we lost a lot, and I've heard numbers in the, but, oh, I'm sorry, in the northwest, there was enough snow. The snow at least kept coming, so there's less loss in the northwest than in the southwest. I haven't heard concrete numbers, um, but uh, I would say that it's going to be less than 50% loss in the northwest. I, I don't know about in the southwest, but in areas like in Ohio, which Lake Erie, the lake, their lake effect just shut down immediately almost because it's always, if it if the lakes freeze, Erie is always the first to freeze. There were some areas where there was 100% loss for this year. They just won't be able to grow grapes. That's what I had heard. I, I haven't been there myself. but uh, So in Michigan, we were spared in some areas, but there were some areas that also got hit really badly. Wow. Okay. So then the snow was actually at an advantage during the winter for your vineyards. Oh, absolutely. Uh, because it, it's going to, you get the snow in there and you get a lot in there. You're not obviously going to plow in a vineyard and you just want it to keep coming and stacking on top of each other and you get 
you know, a taller and taller snowpack. And most importantly, you're going to protect the, the, basically the roots first. That's number one. And then just for, as you go further and further up the vine, you're just protecting more and more of basically the, the stem and the, the rootstock. Basically, the more you can protect that, the better you are, you're, you're going to be positioned, uh, when you get really cold temperatures, because it could be negative 10 degrees Fahrenheit outside. And that's really bad. But if most of the vine is buried in snow, well, then it's basically 32 degrees down there, and that's fine. Right. Great. Okay, and so just one last question. So geography can influence a lot of how you grow the wines, and obviously because that mm-hmm. climate will affect it. Mm-hmm. So I'm just trying to see if you would know your best options for mm-hmm. this. Where would you say you could get your best dry wine? Where would you say you could get your best sweet wine and so forth? Like anywhere in the world. Oh, anywhere in the world. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would look for dry in, uh, oh boy, yeah, that's stuff when I hadn't really thought of this before. <laughs> uh, sweet wines, I definitely think, I'm thinking of like Germany, uh, so southern mountainous Germany, like the Rieslings there, which our Rieslings are now being able to compete with, I would say, um, in, in terms of quality. Right. At least I, I was just there last summer, I was trying both side by side, but I might be biased also. <laughs> Um, but for dry wines, you know, you can go to a number of places because it's a lot about the style. Warmer helps to get a drier wine, but not necessarily. Um, that it, it's all on personal preference. And that's one thing. That's also why I like, you know, studying wine is because everybody's got an opinion about it. All right. Thank you for coming in. Thanks. I could not see your face and no matter what I move or the things I threw away, the mountains just kept gathering. Now some are here to stay and we have run to WDBM Impact 89 FM. This is Exposure, and I'm your host, Stephen Rich. In 15 minutes, we'll hear from a slam poet right here at MSU. But first, 
Composting has become a major part of farming here at MSU, and some individuals from the RISE program have started to study the use of worms in composting. Earlier this year, former host Abby Newton sat down with Lori Thorpe and Liz Brivich to discuss these worms. So first off, what is the RISE program, Professor Thorpe? The RISE program stands for the Residential Initiative on the Study of the Environment. We're a living learning program located in Bailey Hall. It is a academic specialization or a minor, um, and we serve seven colleges here on campus. So we have students from well over 45 majors. Liz is a fisheries and wildlife major, but we have students in anthropology, zoology, engineering, the list goes on and on. The thing that's in common with all of those students is they have a passion for the environment and um, are taking some special courses in environmental studies. And you right now are working on a very specific and interesting project, I'd say. Liz, what is this project? Well, right now we're starting vermicomposting, which is composting with worms in the Bailey Hoop House. So as part of the program, we actually have our own greenhouse on campus. And in there, we're going to start composting the food residue from the Brody cafeteria. So like when they chop up the pineapples and they have all the pineapple heads and they peel the carrots and they do crazy things to potatoes. I don't even know what they do in there, but there's a lot of scraps that could be composted that um, we will actually feed to worms and then the worms will eat eat it up and process it. And then we'll have really great castings, which are worm poop. That's actually just um, a really great fertilizer that we can use on campus or even sell. Okay, why do you feel like this is important? I oh. love this program. Oh. It's so great. We love it. Well, one of the things that's so important is we are really interested in looking at reducing this campus's environmental footprint. And part of that environmental footprint is the cafeteria food waste um, or food, re food residue. Um, we're trying to change that language. So um, one of the things we're not we don't want to say is that that food is waste because actually it's a very valuable resource. Um, it's been viewed as a waste and so that waste has been put in the landfill or in the sanitary sewer which is not a very good place to put something that can be composted because compost is a wonderful sustainable source of fertility for our food system. So what we're doing with this is we're taking these food scraps from Brody and cycling them through the worms and and then turning it into this really valuable resource. And that resource is also being sold at the MSU Surplus Store. So community members, you can come to the MSU Surplus Center and um, the worm castings from this project are for sale there. Um, I also want to brag a little bit on Liz because <laughs> she's course. a first-year student here and she's an amazing young leader. Um, the reason we're doing this project is because she wrote a grant with um, three of her colleagues to the Office of Campus Sustainability, the B. Spartan Green Fund, and they were funded $5,000 to start this project. And I'm going to turn it over to Liz and let her talk a little bit more about that project specifically that's funded through OCS. We actually do vermicomposting on the student organic farm, but by bringing it on campus, it's going to be somewhere where students can see it, classes can come look at it. It's going to be a visible presence on our campus of closing the loop, making sure that what we make isn't isn't just turned into something that's waste, it's actually turned into something that's a new resource by turning it into that compost. And I think this will be a great chance to have a presence on campus and in the Bailey Hoop House to show what we're really capable of as a university and transitioning to new systems like this. John and I have been composting at the Student Organic Farm for mm, probably three years now. And it's not always a project that students are jumping for joy <laughs> to get involved with, to get their hands in the dirt and handle red, you know, worms and, and food waste. And so when we met Liz this fall and then learned that she had spearheaded this huge vermicomposting project back in her home school system in California, we were pretty excited to hitch up with her and her leadership skills and her knowledge about vermicomposting. So um, it's a really neat 
marriage of interests and skills um, and bringing this to the students. It's one thing for me as a professor to bring this information and, and bring it to the farm and bring it to students. But when peers, peer-to-peer mentoring can, you know, when someone cool and hip like Liz can say, <laughs> get her picture on the front page of the state news with her hands in the dirt and her chipped red pink fingernail polish and a fistful of worms, you know, it makes recycling and composting cool, which is really what I've always thought, and I think Liz has too, that this is really cool stuff and we want more people to get involved with it. How did your idea start to do the vermicomposting? I think I realized a big way that on campus we had room for a project like this. I have been comfortable doing it before at my high school, at other schools in my district. And so I thought at MSU, it's such a big school. We have so much. We have the space for it. We have the students for it. We have definitely enough scraps that we could be using. And I thought there was just a really good opportunity there, especially when we found out about the B Spartan Green Fund. In our RISE class, we had a grant writing assignment, and I thought that was the perfect opportunity to get on something I really wanted to do. And when did you start it in your high school? How did that project play out? I had read about some school doing it in another state, and I thought, that is, like, the weirdest thing. There's no way that works. Like, that's, like, that's so weird. And then I looked into it, and I realized it wasn't weird. It's super cool. It happens in nature. There's no reason that we shouldn't be using it here. And the thing is, like, people think worm bins are gross, but they don't smell. You got a chance to smell one of our <laughs> bins. They just smell like She's dirt. Correct. <laughs> they smell like dirt. It's, it's really easy, actually, for everyone to do. You just add food. Worms can eat up to their weight and food scraps a day. It's, a, it's an awesome way to see yourself actually having an impact. Like, your trash isn't going into a landfill where when you um, put these scraps in a landfill, they actually generate methane gas when they decompose, which is a greenhouse gas. So when we instead use the process of composting, we're turning them into fertilizer instead of these evil forces (laughs) contributing to global warming so and I hear that you have one in your room actually this is true (laughs) I do have a vermicomposting bin under my bed and they're not considered pets so I think you're good with (laughs) RHA hopefully RHA doesn't bust in on me but so far we've been really good what what was the response of your roommate my roommate was she's a zoology major so she doesn't really have the heebie-jeebies about animals (laughs) she was pretty cool with it she actually came with me to get the worms and um, the bin the bin doesn't smell, so she's complaint-free with that. That's good. And where do you find get the worms? Are they specific worms for the bin, or how does that process work? Well, not just any worm will do. We had to get that in. Um, it's, a special, it's a special worm. And for Liz's bin, we went out to the Student Organic Farm and got the worms from our giant vermicomposting project out there. Um, these are red worms. These aren't the common earthworm that you see on a rainy day out on flopping around on the sidewalk. <laughs> um, they're also often called manure worms. They're, um, they're decomposers that are found in kind of leaf litter in the forest. <clears throat> but there's commercial enterprises that actually grow these worms for commercial purposes like what we're doing. So there, it's a movement really across the country because food waste is on everybody's radar now. And people are paying attention to what they're doing with their food waste and that it actually is a resource that can be used in a world where we have limited resources. So, And it, there's also an appalling amount of food waste on this planet, which we're trying to work both ends of this. So we're also working with Carla Yasan in um, culinary services. Um, she just recently did a, f- did a food waste audit in a couple of the res halls, and I, won't, I don't have the exact data on that, but I, I know it was over a pound of plate waste per student per day because all of that food that's wasted is also wasted energy that's gone into the production of that, and then something has to be done with it. Now, what does yeah. the worm vermicomposting bin actually <clears throat> look like? 
Oh, good question. The style of the bin that we went with is a flow-through composter. So how it'll work is that it's it's pretty big. It's I think it's like eight feet long. It it's is. made of wood. And how it works is we'll be able to add food in the top of it, and you'll just bury it under a layer of litter. We'll be using newspaper and leaves as bedding. What we'll do is we'll add the new food materials at the top, and then the worms will be living near the middle top of the bin. And then as they process the food waste, it'll actually, their castings will flow through a system of like, kind of like pipes that we have setting up, set up horizontally. So that way the castings will fall through to bins we have at the bottom. So it'll be really easy for us to get and use this great fertilizer without having to remove the worms and sort through things. So it's a really cool, originally they just used to throw a whole bunch of worms in a bin. That's what I'm used to. But now with this flow through system, it's a way that we're making it a lot more efficient and a lot easier to do too. And then worm bins. And so Liz doesn't have an eight foot worm bin in her room. <laughs> no. Worm bins come. Although she probably would. I um, would if I could. I think she would. Um, we'll There's put still that time. On next year's project. Right. There you go. Um, but they come in all shapes and sizes. And so the worm bin, for example, that she has in her room is just made out of a simple um, storage tub. And you drill holes in the top so that air can get in and you make a moist bedding and it can be shredded newspaper or, or leaf litter from the forest floor or you know a little bit of soil and then some food scraps um, and I first learned about worm bins when I used to work with elementary schools in the Lansing area because there's a whole curriculum that elementary school teachers love to use around a worm bin. And so teachers often have them in their classrooms because kids actually love to get their hands in the dirt. I used to have students want to put worms in their pockets and take them <laughs> home. Yeah, but then it grew into our bigger interest of, okay, how do we scale this up for campus? And um, that's where we're at now. What we want to do is set an example first with this demonstration bin in the Bailey Hoop House and show that, look, this can work at MSU. Students caught on to this. They thought that this was something they wanted to support. And then the goal is to share our success and share how we did this with other universities and get them to do similar things because every school should be doing this. Every business should be doing this. This, this should be something that everyone does, just like using a trash can. The worms are an awesome tool. And then they're going to also offer a worm bin workshop, so that'll be available to students if they're interested. Um, we hope lots and lots of people come. Um, we'll we got have... really cute stickers that say, I've got worms at MSU. <laughs> mm -hmm. They're very cute. We're just trying to show people that this is something accessible. Like, you can do it. Anyone can do it. You don't have to be, like, a weird environmental kid to do it. Like, it's a cool thing to do. We're, you know, we're kind of, you know, Liz <laughs> yeah. and I kind of thinking we can save the world with worms. <laughs> you really no can. one's stopping Quite you. honestly, we really do. <laughs> one worm at a time. Exactly. <laughs> one banana peel at a time. I think t-shirts could definitely oh, be in the mix here. The There's so many quotes I'm hearing. Got the t-shirts ordered. <laughs> We're good. Ball caps next. <laughs> I think we're at there. MSU Worms on Twitter. So <laughs> that's about to be trending. Watch out. Hint, hint. <laughs> oh my goodness. What has the reaction so far been from students? It's always the same. People are always like, no, you don't. That's so gross. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I do. Like, this is a real thing. And they're like, worms? And you're like, yeah, worms. And then once you explain it to them, like, this, this switch kind of clicks, and they're like, wow, like, that actually makes so much sense. And that's why we do it. We do it because it makes sense, and it's an awesome resource to use. So I think people actually, they get kind of excited about it. It seems weird to get excited about worms, but there's also so many good puns that go along with it. Oh. You know, how many times have I heard, oh, Liz has got worms, you know, like, <laughs> 
that's okay. That's really funny. So, and I've experienced this reaction because when you first told me you had one in your bedroom, I was like, oh my god, this girl has worms in her bedroom. Like what? But definitely, I'm at the excitement stage with you now. All of the vermicompost that, that we'll be generating from the Brody Square pre-consumer food waste residue will be used then in the Bailey Hoop House with the product that we grow there. So we grow culinary herbs and salad mix um, for Brody Square in the stateroom, which is this really lovely closing the cycle. So once something that was once food residue, pineapple tops, a pineapple tap is a terrible thing to waste is one of our other fun phrases, <laughs> um, gets digested by worms. They create this great compost. The compost then goes into the, bed, the different beds in the hoop house. We grow salad mix. The salad mix goes to the veg out. You eat the veg out salad, and it comes back. We've got a circle of life at really MSU. Nice, cool. Look at this. Yeah. And, and we have to give a shout-out to Dr. Birnbaum. Really, he's the brains behind this project. Liz and I are just the pretty faces. <laughs> <laughs> so he's doing some incredible research, uh, really scholarly research, on looking at the various things that need, are appropriate to feed the worms and the the media that is the output of the pro the, the process. Um, and his he's got two grad students that are also on the project in the Department of Horticulture. So we wanna we wanna give our um, our kudos to John and helping us with this project. We couldn't yeah. do it without his help. Professor Bierenbaum gave us his take on the project during the worm construction. There's just less access to fertilizer and what we're trying to do is increase access to materials that people can make themselves. So lower cost, simple but also, uh, on a lot of farms, you have animal manure that you can use to fertilize your plants, but in cities, you don't have that. In cities, what you do have is a lot of leaves, a lot of paper, cardboard, and then food waste. And those are all things that will make great uh, compost for growing plants. And so I'm, that's, I'm certainly investing in this because I'm hoping that it's going to continue to grow. I'm just really in it for getting students involved and helping them see how awesome of a process it really is. Okay, well one last question. How many worms are in this um, bin? Okay, get ready. We're gonna have 10 pounds of worms. I think it's about a zillion, bin. is that it's, right? It's Liz? about a zillion. That's a good, that's a good <laughs> solid scientific measurement. I can't even fathom. I think there's a thousand, a thousand worms in a pound, if I'm not mistaken. Well, it sounds like you guys have an exciting time ahead of you, but thank you so much for coming in. We really wish you the best of luck. Thank, thank you for you. having us.
Now, eating in college is a challenge many people don't think about until getting to the university. But once a student moves off campus, making your own food can become an even bigger challenge. Last year, reporter Lauren Godleski talked to students about life after cafeteria food. Hi, can I please have oil? And then I'll also have spinach and broccoli and tomatoes and onions and cheese. Anything else? That's it, please. These are the sounds of life without a meal plan. Customizing orders without the cooking. But as students get older and move off campus, they have to face life without a meal plan. Sophomore Victoria Tompkinson, communication major, was a resident of Brody last year, with the luxury of easy access to one of the best CAFs on campus. Now, in her apartment. It's a lot different. I definitely miss the CAFs a lot. And going from having all Brody to just having to cook for myself kind of sucks. Victoria admits that cooking isn't exactly her specialty. I'm actually a really terrible cook. And I've had a lot of catastrophes cooking. I don't know. I've gotten better at it, but it's I'm definitely not as good as I should be. <laughs> One time I set up the fire alarms and like smoked up the whole apartment building. Victoria said she naturally sticks to the simple things like making salad, noodles, or Easy Mac. You have to schedule the time out of your day, and you have to spend time like thinking about what you want to eat instead of just going to the calf. But it also like we would get sidetracked at the calf and sit there for a while, so that's also been a little bit of a benefit. For special education major Melissa Smith, life without a meal plan can get a little more expensive. It consists of easier meals, and they're not as home-cooked. They're not as nice, I guess. And I have to buy my lactate because I'm lactose intolerant, so it's way more expensive on my own instead of having just my meal plan. But when it comes to grocery shopping, pricing typically decreases. Uh, I go with my roommates, and we split it four ways. It's easier just because I'm not buying everything individually, so it's cheaper. The thing that makes her individual price add up? I just buy the lactate. Although he enjoyed learning to cook for himself in the beginning of the semester, about five weeks in, sophomore Tyler Porritt, supply chain management major, decided to get a partial meal plan, granting him 70 passes. There's been a couple times where I want to go like more than two or three times a week to the calf, but I need to ration it out so I have it for the rest of the year. Tyler said his top three meals consist of PB&J, grilled cheese and frozen chicken. My biggest disadvantage was I was never able to get like a fresh like salad or anything like that because I don't want to buy that stuff. That was mostly the main reason just so I could get salads and then it's kind of nice I can just go there I can bring my school supplies and study for an hour and eat during that whole time. When it comes to living on your own it's nice to have the freedom to cook your own meals but students still find themselves missing the easy access of the calf. Victoria relates. I think it's a good experience to have to cook for yourself and grocery shop for yourself and stuff, but it's also a really nice luxury to have the calf. For Impact Exposure, I'm Lauren Gutlusky.
felt like it was gonna be a good one And I was right, I was right Saw you next to me and I felt so lucky to be alive Be alive Cause the moment's gone soon as it exists Try my best to capture this Save it in a mason jar For when I got an aching heart So let's roll out of bed, go for a drive This is Stephen Rich, and you're listening to Exposure on Impact 89FM. Now, you may be familiar with slam poetry. A single person goes on stage to perform their heart out to a crowded room, but we wanted to know what inspired these people to pursue such a personal and challenging art form. Stephen Plant from the MSU Slam Poetry team sat down to discuss this art. So first, just to start, start things off and get like a little bit of background, um, when did you first explore start, starting to do slam poetry? Um, I'm pretty sure it was sophomore year of high school. Um, our English teacher had been into slam poetry. He had taught in Chicago where slam poetry had started. And he just had us do a class slam and told us all about what slam was about. And it was just really interesting to see going from, you know, classic poetry or even like beats poetry to this new kind of poetry that was fast and in your face and competitive. And it just, it kind of brought a new light to a, more of a competitive art form. Um, people who don't necessarily do sports and fulfill their competitive edge through that. It was a way to get up in front of people and compete for money, compete for fame. So that really stuck out to me pretty early. Yeah, that's one of the things that um, I re- find really interesting about slam poetry because with a lot of other poetry, you know, you, th- you think it's more... Um, more all about feelings and expressing emotion and slam poetry get, can get really intense. It is really emotional, but it can get yeah. really intense. So is that what inspired you to start learning it is just the intensity of it and the competitive nature? Yeah. Um, it, mostly the competitive nature. And I, I've been in a band for eight years at that point, um, probably about 15 years to date. And we were just like, there was a lot of us in the band. It was very easy to get up on stage and be, part of a band and not feel that everyone was always looking at you or it wasn't just on you. But when you're slamming, you have three minutes in front of a crowd of people and it's just you. You can't hide behind other people. You can't hide behind an instrument and they're listening to every word that comes out of your mouth. So you, in that three minutes, you have to, instead of having this huge soliloquy that might go on for 15 minutes and everyone in the room just loves it, it's just it's like a shotgun to the face kind of poetry. Like you have to get your message out real quick and hope that they understand your message. Mm -hmm. And do you sing in your band? Yeah, I sang in my band and played keyboards for... Did did you find any um, comparison in writing lyrics for a song versus writing a poem? Um, Yeah, it kind of started crossing over. Um, The thing about a lot of slam poetry is you can't go into a lot of more complicated figurative language a lot of the time. Um, It kind of depends on if you're writing the poetry for the sake of slam poetry or just writing the poetry for the sake of yourself. Um, Some poets, they limit themselves a lot by 
only writing to slam poetry to be competitive. And if you're going to be competitive, you can't have poems that are no one understands the first time that they hear them. They might never hear it again. So you have to get your message across really fast. Um, so I kind of focused on that at first. But then as I started to evolve, it just became more of whatever came out in the songs, whatever came out in the poetry was what I really wanted to do. Okay. So, so they kind of started to cross over after a while. Yeah, and so it sounded like, it sounds like what you're saying is um, with the slam poetry, you're writing a lot more for the audience in order to have that competitive edge? Yeah, um, a big sort of difference between spoken word poetry and slam poetry is, slam poetry is competitive spoken word poetry. Mm. Um, if you go to a poetry slam, it is geared towards being competitive. Just because a poem is spoken word doesn't necessarily mean it's a slam poem. Um, and a lot of people kind of get mixed up in that. Mm. Um, so when you say that you're a slam poet versus doing slam poetry versus being a spoken word poet, it kind of all muddles up after a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so just to go back to the writing process a little bit, are you do you find yourself being more hit with inspiration and it's really easy to get out like a whole poem or is it kind of bit by bit and you really got to, you know, force out the whole thing and get the whole thing set just one one section at a time? Um, I know a lot of people are they get that moment of inspiration, they write the whole poem and they move on to the next poem. Um, a lot of what I've kind of done is I'll have like a moment of inspiration that might start a poem and then I work on three or four poems at the same time. And then mm. as that, that mood, hit, mood hits again, I can go back and finish the poem. Yeah. And it, do you kind of limit yourself to certain topics that you like to explore or is it just kind of free range, whatever you feel like writing? I, I try not to limit myself too much. Um, I've been known not to limit myself. A lot of people, they'll write a lot of poems about the same thing where it'll be a lot of poems about the same breakup or a lot of poems about the same tragedy in their life or the same political view. But I always wanted to use the poems as an excuse to explore, you know, how I was really feeling about anything really. I don't really write a lot of poems on the same topic. And so I understand you're in the slam poetry group at Michigan State, right? Yep. And so do you guys compete a lot, a lot against each other, or is it do you go to different events and compete against other groups? Um, for the most part, we compete against each other. The club is more, I would say, for an appreciation of slam poetry. Mm -hmm. We have people in the club that don't necessarily write a lot of poems, but they really like slam poetry. Um, our events are open to anyone in the public, so if someone that's 25 that lives in Lansing wants to come do slam poetry, they can come to our events. We have done a few events. Um, we had a MSU team slam against the U of M slam poetry team earlier this year. We've done events, a lot of charity events through the Capitol building. We slammed last 4th of July on the steps of the Capitol building. Very cool. <clears throat> oh, excuse me. Um, and is it hard to um, like be friendly with these people that you're kind of competing with on a regular basis? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the people that are in the club, we all know, we always say the point is not the point. The point is the poetry mm -hmm. where we have heard all the poems that everyone's doing six, seven, eight times, practicing them with them, critiquing them. So when we go to slam, it's more about helping people who come to see us appreciate slam poetry and 
not necessarily winning, but against like the U of M team slam, like, yeah, there was a lot of planning of, <laughs> yeah, even though we we're all coming together and yeah, the point is the poetry. We really did want to beat them. Yeah. Do you have any big rivalries as U of M a big rivalry for you guys? Or is it just whoever's in the moment, whoever's there, they're going down. <laughs> it's more of whoever's in the moment. Um, I think what really helps is slamming against the same people at Michigan State or having a lot of the same people. A lot of what actually goes into competitive slam is having a wide variety of poetry on multiple different topics. Mm. So if someone goes up and does a really awesome love poem and all the girls in the audience are just dripping over it, you want to go up and either do an even better love poem or you want to do a poem about how love sucks or you want to do <laughs> a breakup poem and just try and play off of what they're doing um, instead of just like going up there and saying, oh, well, this is the poem that I'm going to do. So that's kind of where like the competitive edge of slam really comes in. It's not just going up there and showing what you've got. It's a lot of planning and st strategy behind it all. Yeah, it, you got to have a couple of weapons ready. Yeah. <laughs> And so you mentioned playing on the Capitol steps, playing or uh, excuse me, performing on the Capitol steps, um, performing against U of M. What what has been your favorite or most exciting uh, performance? Um, I would say the Capitol building was definitely my favorite, just because there were a lot of other organizations there through Lansing. There were a lot of high school students there that had had the same experience that I had, where a teacher had introduced it to them, and it was just in the middle of the summer, and just that power of standing at the podium like where Governor Snyder does and looking down all of Michigan Avenue and just slamming a poem about how much you hate the government. It just was a very <laughs> liberating feeling. And so, I mean, obviously this kind of writing takes a lot of hard work. So the first question that really comes to mind is like, why do it? Have you had like an experience or a time that you, you can kind of sum up your reasons for why you continue to create these types of works? I would say the moment when you get up there, not necessarily when you, because you get scored in the end, but the moment after you finish and you look at everyone's face and you just see what you've done to them, I guess, um, because it is such a quick sort of poem, you kind of take them on an emotional sort of ride. And then at the end, you can see if the message actually stuck and what you were trying to say actually sticks. It's just a very liberating feeling to have that sort of power over people in mm -hmm. such a short amount of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it. Now, we were going to hear some of Stephen's poetry, but unfortunately we had some audio issues here, so I promise we will get those to you in the future.
Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Special thanks to station manager Gabriela Saldivia and general manager Ed Glazer, as well as all of our staff here at Impact 89 FM. Tonight's show and all other exposure shows can be found on our website at www.impact89fm.org. Keeping you informed and bidding you farewell until next time, I'm Stephen Rich, and you've been listening to Impact Exposure 89 FM. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure. 89 FM.